0: How are you all doing? Thankful, Thankful, awesome. Okay, well, hey, the Dodgers disappointed us, but Jesus never does. He's still on the throne. We're here to worship Him. Praise His name. Amen? Amen. All right, I like it when you guys say amen. So, preaching, proclaiming the Word of God is not just a passive exercise, it's an interactive exercise, and so I want to invite you to feel free to respond as the Word is proclaimed this morning. You know what? If you feel like if God's speaking to you, if the Word is speaking to you, convicting you shout out amen, you know, shout word, you know. So, I want, I want us to be together <clears throat> this morning. We're back in John's gospel, and so I want to invite you to open to John chapter 10, we're going to continue where we left off last weekend, starting at verse 22. <clears throat> John tells us, at that time... If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. <clears throat> he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Church, this is the word of God. <clears throat> We have been camping out in the first half of John's Gospel for a number of weeks now. And specifically, more recently, we've been camping out in kind of the second half of the first half of John's Gospel, if you follow me. And uh, our passage today really represents, in John's account of Jesus' life and ministry, it represents the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. Um, And next week, it will... uh, It will turn on a significant event as Jesus raises Lazarus, and then Jesus is going to turn his attention to his passion and to preparing his disciples for his departure. But our passage today represents the conclusion, the climax of his public ministry. And throughout chapters 5 through 10, which is where we've been studying the past weeks, uh, we've been seeing uh, Jesus against the backdrop of Jewish feasts or festivals. Or traditions, sacred times. In chapter 5, we see Jesus healing a blind man on the Sabbath. <clears throat> in chapter 6, we see Jesus standing up and proclaiming something very important on Passover. And of course, we know we just did our Passover in a way, we just took communion. But for the Jews, Passover. Uh, consisted of a meal, a meal of bread and wine and a, and a sacrificial lamb. And, and on Passover, Jesus stands up as, you know, the, the soon-to-be sacrificial lamb, and He says that I am the bread of life, and whoever partakes of Me will have eternal life. So there's Sabbath, there's Passover, and then later on, chapter 7 through 10, what we discussed last week, we see Jesus ministering against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a a multiple-day feast or festival where uh, the Jewish people would remember their wanderings in the wilderness when God delivered His people from captivity in Egypt. And many things happened as they wandered in the wilderness. Uh, For example, God Himself led His people with a pillar of of uh, fire by night and with a cloud by day. And with this imagery of fire in mind during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And then similarly, against the backdrop of this Feast of Tabernacles where in the wilderness, the people were thirsty and Moses struck the rock and water came forth to satisfy the people, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty... Come to me and drink. And so, in the recent chapters, there has been unfolding before us this fantastic fulfillment motif as John has kind of picked up all the Lego pieces of Israel's history and put them together and connected them to Jesus to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those pieces, of all of those events. In our passage this morning this progression, this build is going to come to culmination. It's going to crescendo. And we're going to see many of the themes repeated from our past weeks in John's gospel. We're going to see more stubborn unbelief on the part of the Jews that are in view in this passage. We're going to see Jesus again as the good shepherd. We're going to see Jesus' relationship with His his Father further emphasized. And we're going to see especially and most importantly, Jesus revealing even more His true identity. So, turn with me to verse 22, and let's begin running through our passage. John tells us, he begins just kind of by setting the stage. Verse 22, "'At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon.'" And so right away, John sets the scene for us. He gives us a time and a place for these events. Where is the place? Jerusalem, right? So these events are are unfolding in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the spiritual epicenter of the day. But it's not just that they're unfolding in Jerusalem. They're unfolding in the temple in Jerusalem. And not just in the temple in Jerusalem, but in a specific location in the temple in Jerusalem in Solomon's portico, or Solomon's colonnade. Here I have for you a scale model of the second temple from the period that we are uh, reading about in Scripture today. This scale model uh, stands in Jerusalem today. Um, I have seen it. And if we zoom in kind of on the left side of that model, you'll see that built into the outer colonnade or uh, uh, walls of uh, the temple, the structure... And that probably would have been Solomon's portico or colonnade. And so Jesus was under that uh, with these people, with the Jews surrounding him. And that's where all these events are unfolding. Uh, The famous uh, French painter James Tissot from the 1800s uh, painted this painting, which is kind of a depiction of this scene that's unfolding. This is what it probably would have looked like. This painting is presently hanging in the Brooklyn Museum in New York. John also tells us that it was winter time. Perhaps they were undercover to protect them from the harsh east wind which would pass through Jerusalem. Maybe it was raining. This was the rainy season at that time. But regardless, we have a very clear and vivid setting before us. It was winter, and specifically in winter, it was the Feast of Dedication. So... You know, John has showed us Jesus on the Sabbath, Jesus on Passover, Jesus on the Feast of Tabernacles, and now he's going to show us Jesus during the Feast of Dedication. Well, what is that? Well, it's Hanukkah. It turns out that the Feast of Dedication is what we call today Hanukkah. And it wasn't something that was prescribed in the Old Testament, but it was a feast of It was a celebration that emerged out of events that occurred in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We refer to that period as the 400 years of silence. The Old Testament closes with the last prophets. Malachi concludes the Old Testament. There's 400 years where God does not speak through the prophets, but lots of stuff still happens historically. And one of the things that happens is that the Jewish people are persecuted just terrifically, horribly by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He outlaws Judaism. He outlaws the Torah. He outlaws circumcision. He imposes draconian persecution measures all over the people. And one of the things he does to undermine Judaism is he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he defiles the sacrificial altar by sacrificing a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. And then he erects a pagan altar to the Greek god Zeus. And so the Jewish people are just oppressed, they're offended, they're persecuted, they've been murdered, and eventually there's an uprising, there's a, result, a revolt, they throw off, you know, the evil shackles of this regime, and they regain their independence. Well, their temple, which is the center of Judaism, right, in Jerusalem, has been defiled by epiphanies, so what they do is they re-consecrate the temple, And that is what the Feast of Dedication is all about. It's about rededicating the temple, re-consecrating it, consecrating it, setting it apart again for practice and worship. Does that make sense? And so this Feast of Dedication is the backdrop uh, for our passage today. The stage is very much set for this plot, which is going to unfold kind of in two acts. And each act is going to begin with uh, uh, this group of Jewish people attacking Jesus. Jesus is going to respond to them. And then at the conclusion of his response, he's going to offer this remarkable claim about himself. Then the same thing's going to happen. They're going to attack him. Then he's going to respond and reinforce what he said the first time, offer a remarkable claim about himself. So turn with me and look at verse 24. So here they all are, and John tells us, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. This could also be translated, how long are you going to annoy us? If you're the Christ, just tell us, they say. Why do you think that they asked Jesus that question? Remember, this is the end of his ministry. It's been approximately three years. He has been teaching. He has been ministering. He's been performing miracles. He's been unfolding the Scriptures in front of them. They've heard a lot. They've seen a lot. Why do you think they ask Him at this point if He's the Messiah? Yeah, they want to trap Him, right? Jesus has become a threat to them. He's called them, you know, uh, hypocrites. He's called them a brood of vipers. He has undermined their position with respect to the rest of the people. He's drawn attention away from them. They feel threatened by him. They want to do away with him. They want to discredit him. They have a compromised and malicious agenda. So, they're trying to trap him. Now, the question is, how does Jesus respond? In verse 25, we see that Jesus answers them, and he says, "'I told you, and you do not believe.'" So, he references what he has already said to them in the past, but then he points out yet again their willful, persistent hardness of heart and unbelief. This is the first of two times in this passage that he's in a single out their unbelief. See, Jesus had told them quite plainly who he is, and he had told them over and over throughout the past three years of his ministry. And we don't have to go back that far to, to see the pattern. In chapter 5, Uh, He told them, when they got upset with him for healing on the Sabbath, that uh, his father is working until now, and he is working with his father. And the Jews understood that that was like making himself equal with God. In chapter 8, he told them that he is the light of the world. Later on in chapter 8, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And even later on in chapter 8, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, invoking the divine name, invoking the name of Yahweh, applying it to himself, which was so scandalous to them. And then just last week, when Pastor Andrew uh, just so beautifully unpacked the first half of chapter 10, we see that Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, I am the door, I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. And so my point is, is that Jesus has certainly told them quite a lot, quite plainly, and what he has told them has been sufficient. Surely it's been sufficient for all those who heard what He said and believed, unlike this group of Jews who are trying to trap Him one last time. You see, their problem was not a lack of information, but a lack of transformation. They lacked what the Bible refers to as repentance and faith. They couldn't see Jesus as the Messiah because their hearts wouldn't See Jesus as the Messiah. Their hearts were stubborn. They were unbelieving. They were were hardened. But now Jesus is going to continue. He's going to move from what he's said to them in the past to what he's done in front of them. He's going to point to his works. He's going to single out how his works testify to his unique identity and to his relationship with the Father. Verse 25: The works that I do. In my Father's name bear witness about me. But you all do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Profoundly encouraging words to us this morning. But pay close attention to Jesus' disclosure, his revelation of his relationship with the Father. Because what's he saying here? He's saying that the Father is greater than all, that the Father has given Jesus, the Son, his sheep. Absolutely no one is able to steal away, excuse me, even one sheep from the Father. The Father gives the sheep to the Son. So, Jesus is describing the activity of God the Father, but then He's also describing the activity of the Son. The Son is good. The, he is good. He's beautiful. He's the excellent shepherd that cares for the sheep. The Son calls His sheep, and they follow Him. The Son gives them eternal life. The Son guarantees that they will never perish, and the Son guarantees that their spiritual protection perfectly just like the Father. This should be of great encouragement to us because we live in a world that is broken, a world that is divided, a world that is hostile, a world where the veneer of peace and prosperity are so thin and fragile, it seems at any moment like things could unravel. Consider the socio political state of our nation, where we are at odds with one another. But I look out here and I see people of every color, of, ev- every, of every generation, of every socioeconomic bracket, and I say that only Jesus can bring us together like this. Not our politicians, not their flawed policies, not governments, only Jesus. And though we may suffer in this life and endure hardship, what Jesus is saying <clears throat> is that for us His sheep He has us in His hands, and He will never let us go spiritually, that He cares for us, that He is watching over us, and that we have eternity to look forward to with Him despite whatever frustrations and trials we go through right now. Now, it turns out that a lot of what Jesus has just said is a recapitulation of what He said in the passage from last week in His Good Shepherd discourse. But I want us to begin to see something. I want us to begin to see in Jesus' words here the contours of unity between the Father and the Son, the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus very dramatically punctuates the entire response to these Jews with this concluding and very scandalous declaration in verse 30. He he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, I want to invite you to for just a moment… Just close your eyes and put yourself in this scene. I mean, you you saw the picture, the painting, the illustration. You know, we're in Jerusalem, in the temple, Solomon's portico. Jesus is surrounded by all these Jews. The feast of dedication is going on around them. The festival of lights and the, the, the light of the world himself has stood up. And he has made this proclamation, I and the Father are one. And during this feast of dedication, all the Jewish people from around the region are converging, making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Very good monotheists whose view of God is governed by a very iconic and memorable verse from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, right? The Shema coming from the Hebrew word meaning to hear. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, And Jesus says, in the midst of this amazing stage, I and the Father are one. You smell what's cooking here? Can you see how heavy this is, what's unfolding? As we consider Jesus' statement, we should ask, in what sense does he mean that he is one with the Father? What what exactly does he mean? And I want to suggest to you that Jesus and his Father are one, that they are perfectly united in multiple respects. They are perfectly united in essence, in will, and in action. Perfectly united in essence, meaning they're perfectly united in nature, perfectly united in, to use a theological term, substance or or godness. They're perfectly united in essence, in will, and in action. Um, The word one here. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The word one can carry a nuanced meaning depending upon how it's used, the context, and the form that it takes in the Greek. <clears throat> For example, it could mean one man. It could mean one woman. It could mean one person. But it's not used in, either of the, in any of those ways in this instance. In this instance, the denotation of the word one very clearly is one thing. And it's used often <clears throat> this way um, to distinguish between uh, parts of a whole. So like when there is a whole in view and there are, there are constituent parts of that whole, to refer to the whole, you would refer to the one thing, one essence, one thing. Godness. Does that make sense? <clears throat> if we look at just the previous couple verses, we will note that it's not just in essence or nature, divine nature, that, God, that Jesus is one with the Father, but uh, He is also one with the Father in will and in action. Verses 28 through 29, we see that together, it's together, jointly, the Father and, and the Son will act to perfectly preserve the sheep, to perfectly preserve you and I. If we broaden the context a little bit more in John's gospel, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. The Son can do nothing just acting independently by Himself, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus ties His action, Jesus ties His will to those of the Father. You see, whatever the Father wills, Jesus wills. The Son in that sense reveals the Father because what the Son wills and does has also been willed and decreed by the Father. It's a perfect dance between the Father and the Son because it is a perfect oneness between them. Consider for a moment the creation account. What are the first words of the Bible? in the beginning, what? God. Who's the subject? God. In the beginning, God takes action. In the beginning, God creates. In the beginning, God is in view. John begins his gospel with those same memorable words, hearkening back to the creation account. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's parse that very briefly. In the beginning was the Word, meaning the Word was present at creation, present at the moment in which space and time were spoken into existence. In the beginning was the Word, meaning the Word was co-eternal with the Father. In, beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, i.e., distinct from God as a person or as an agent. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, divine, same in essence, distinct as persons. Fast forward to the end of John's prologue in verse 14 of chapter 1. This eternal Word, which is a distinct person, but also God, also divine, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us is is the original language. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is saying here, and this is important for us, that the magnificent divine presence that kind of hovered over the ark and led the people through of the wilderness, became a human in Jesus. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, the Word, the Son, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Are you beginning to see a picture? John's saying that the one true God exists as Father and Son, and He hasn't even gotten to The person of the Spirit yet. Now, we could emphasize so many points in this passage. It's a longer passage. It's a rich passage. It's a deep passage. There is so much going on in this passage. We could emphasize the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We could emphasize the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scriptures because that's going to come up in just a moment. We could just thoroughly unpack all the rich fulfillment themes that John has been bringing up. There's so much woven into and throughout this account. But Today, this morning, I want to draw our attention to what I believe is the paramount truth in this passage, one which very much requires rehearsing uh, in the midst of a culture that we live in that has not only lost this truth, but it has suppressed it and rejected it in unrighteousness, as Paul has described the Gentile cultures in Romans chapter 1. And that just leads me to my main and only point. I got one point this morning. Make it very simple, but it is an important point, an indispensable point, a point which must take root in our hearts, and we much, must maintain and treasure and protect with so much conviction, and that is, church, that Jesus is one with the Father because He is God with the Father. I can boil that down for you in three simple words, okay? Let me just translate. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I'm going to say it one more time because it bears repeating. Jesus is God. He's the God-man. He is fully man and fully God. And I say it often when I preach, especially on Tuesday nights, because it's an essential truth and it constantly bears repeating. He is the Son of God and He is also God the Son. This cardinal element of doctrinal truth has been attacked by the enemy, the devil, the liar, the accuser, from the very moment of the incarnation of the Son in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Why? Why, why is it such a big deal, the deity of Jesus? <clears throat> why does the devil attack this doctrine so viciously? Well, it's because he's very smart, and he knows that if he can undermine the deity of Jesus, then he can undermine the gospel itself. You see, to deny the deity of Jesus is to present and to propose and to postulate a false Jesus, and what follows from a false Jesus is a false gospel, a false gospel which unlike the true gospel, as Paul unpacks it and proclaims it in Romans chapter 1, has absolutely no power for the salvation of those who believe it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. The power of God. But it presupposes the deity of Jesus. The gospel itself stands or falls on the deity of Jesus. To deny that Jesus is God is not only to deny the testimony of Scripture, but it's also to lie about Jesus. What does our world say about Jesus today? Yeah, Well, Mormons say that Jesus is a God with a lowercase g, but certainly not one with the Father and certainly not a constituent of the triune Godhead. So for Mormons, Jesus is not God. For Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is not God. For Muslims, Jesus is a prophet, not God. For atheists, Jesus is a man. Maybe he existed. There is no God. Uh, For popular culture, Jesus is a good man possibly your homeboy, you know, or buddy Jesus. They're all false gospels, all distortions of the truth, all misleading, and each presents a false Jesus, and none is the power of God for the salvation who believe them. You see, the domain of darkness that rules over our world is very real, and it has presented many a false and misleading Jesus, but the real Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that, that confronts us here in the Scriptures says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is one with the Father because He is God with the Father. Okay, now back to this group of Jews and their initial question of Jesus. What did they ask Him? What was the initial question? Let's review. You guys with me still? Okay, are you the, are you the Messiah? Man, this is like Jesus' double down moment, okay? They ask him if he's the Messiah, and his response is effectively, I am so much more. You're, you, you don't, you don't even, you're not even ready for who I am. You're not even ready. <clears throat> what kind of a person makes the kind of claim that Jesus has just made? God. I and the Father are one. Like, what would you think about me if I stood up here one Sunday and said, Hope Chapel, I and the Father are one? I'll, I can guarantee you that the elders would, like, promptly come up here and drag me off the stage, uh, you know, and subject me to severe church discipline, rightfully so. But, like, what would you think? Like, what if I was actually genuinely, you know, convinced that I was one with the Father and I stood up here and said, I and the Father are one? What would you think? would be like, yo, you're crazy. Right, you're tripping. You know what if I what if I knew that I was not one with the Father, but I stood up here and said, "Hey, I'm one with I and the Father are one." He's like, "Dude, you're you're you are the worst kind of liar. That that is the worst kind of manipulative lie. You're a horrible, horrible person. Either way, you're a horrible person, right?" If if you are not one with the Father, and you stand up and say that you are one with the Father, whether you believe it, you know, and it's not true, or you know it to be not true, and you say, either way, you are messed up. But Jesus stands up in the temple and says, I and the Father are one. You see, he is either a liar, he is either a lunatic, or he is Lord Creator and God of the universe. This is what philosophers and logicians refer to as a properly closed disjunction. and it's confounded non-believers for a long time. And so, you know, sophisticated men and women have gone to great lengths to try to undermine the force of this claim and undermine Jesus' claims to being God. And so, they have tried to undercut His claims. They've tried to undercut you know, this reality by trying to say that this isn't reliable. Well, you can't really trust the Bible. You can't trust your scriptures because, you know, uh, there's a problem with how they've been translated. False. False. There is not a problem with how they've been translated. Well, there's a problem with, you know, how the documents have been transmitted over the centuries. False. False. Well, there's a problem with, you know, the events that they record don't really correspond to what actually happened in the past. False. Well, you know, you know we, we don't really have all the right books, and you know, you're missing some books in here, and so you need to take some other writings into account that clearly say that Jesus isn't God. False. False, 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 okay? As Christians today, I want to encourage you that we have very, very cogent and defensible arguments for the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture. We have answers for every skeptic and for every skeptical claim. God has raised up wise and godly scholars like our very own Dr. Andrew Kelly, okay? who who has studied professionally and rigorously and these people have given their lives to defending the tradition of Scripture which has been handed down to us over the centuries, we can and we should trust the testimony of Scripture. In church, here is the bottom line. The record of Scripture is clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is one with the Father because He is God with the Father. Man, I'm getting worked up. Okay, now back to our passage. So Jesus makes this remarkable claim. How do the Jews react to him? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Man, it just keeps escalating, right? It it keeps getting more and more tense. The narrative keeps moving more and more towards just an intense climax. Is my late grandmother who I love very much and is with Jesus right now would say, it just keeps getting worser and worser. <clears throat> but you see, Jesus' hour has not yet come, okay? And so, He's going to do what He always do. He's going to take evasive action to neutralize their attempt to stone Him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me. So, he says, look at my works. Look what I've done. Look at at the works that testify to who I am and that testify to my relationship with the Father. But they're going to come at him a second time. And so, the next scene begins to unfold as they level another accusation against him. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you… Being a man, make yourself God. Oh, man. There is a supreme irony in this moment. There is a supreme irony in the accusation they level against Jesus. Church, Jesus is not a man who has made himself God, but the God who has made himself a man on our behalf. And so these guys, they have it utterly upside down, inside out, backwards. They're all confused. They're blind. They're blind. As a side note, um, whoever wants to be kind of critical, you know, and say, oh, well, you know, Jesus never really claims to be God in the Bible, well, then they need to explain why these Jews understood him to be claiming to be God, right? And this isn't the only instance of this. It happens over and over again in John's gospel and in the other ones. Okay, so now Jesus is on the attack, right? <clears throat> they want to stone him, but he's going to knock them in the heads with some confounding truth, like he always does. Um, and as he does it, the words, kind of his next words, are, are a little bit tricky. They could be a little bit confusing, so I just kind of want to explain what's going on. In verse 34, Jesus answers them. He says, um, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Well, that's kind of confusing to us, right? Because we think, like, wait a minute, there's only one God, you know, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Like, who's speaking here and, you know, who is being called gods? Well, Jesus here is citing a psalm. He's citing Psalm 82, uh, verse 6. And I have that up on the screens for you, 82, 6 through 7 here. And this is actually God speaking. He says, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. So notice, God's little g, sons of God, the Most High, God, big G, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, very briefly, there's some debate about who that you are. In this passage, it's possible that it's referring to, you know, angels—a divine council that God had uh, appointed, angels that had fallen. Uh, it's possible that this refers to the the judges that God had raised up to judge uh, His covenant people in the Old Testament. That the word of the Lord came to and empowered, and they were supposed to do a good thing, but many of them failed. Right? Like, think Samson. Uh, It's possible also that the U refers to the Israelites in the wilderness generation when they received the law of the Lord at Sinai. I'm not really 100% certain, but here's what I'm certain of. You want to hear what I'm certain of? There are all good interpretive options. What I'm certain of is that Jesus is not using or invoking this Scripture to try and strengthen His claim to be God. Rather, he's applying this scripture to confound his attackers and to hang them on the horns of a dilemma. When I say the horns of a dilemma, I mean that, like, you have two choices, dilemma, and either way you go, you're going to lose. And here's how this works out. Jesus is using an old rabbinic form of argument, and he's essentially saying, uh, look, the scriptures themselves refer to someone other than God as a son of the most high or even God's little g. Uh, so, you know, I'm either vindicated by the, the use, by this scripture or the scriptures wrong. You know, which one do you want to pick? Do you want to agree with me or do you want to say that the scriptures are wrong because they had a deep and abiding conviction that the scriptures were inerrant just like us, right? So, you can see how they're kind of stuck. Can you see it? So Jesus continues, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, look closely at what Jesus says about himself in this defense. This is so important, okay? This is really, really important. So, a a radical focus for a second. Jesus says about himself that he is him whom the Father what? Consecrated and sent in to the world. What feast is going on right now? The feast of dedication. Which commemorates or remembers the what of the temple. The consecration of the temple. And so here is Jesus. He is in Jerusalem during the feast of dedication. Where everybody has made their pilgrimage. And they're remembering the consecration of the temple. How it was set apart again to God and for God. He's in Solomon's portico. Who was Solomon. Yeah, Solomon was David's son, right? And Solomon was responsible for building the first temple, right? And despite all of his splendor and wisdom and majesty, Solomon still turned from God and failed. It was his undoing. But here's Jesus, right? The true heir of David's throne, the true Davidic son, standing in Solomon's portico saying, that he is the one that the Father has consecrated. You see, it's as if Jesus is saying, you all are celebrating the rededication of this temple. You look to it, is that which God has set apart. You think that you are whole again as a Jewish people because you have this temple back in consecrated working order. But I'm here to tell you all that the Father has set me apart, not this temple. I am the holy one. I am the consecrated one. This temple that you celebrate points to, is fulfilled in, and is replaced by me. That's heavy. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see, we're beginning to see the fingerprints, the, the contours of, of, of the triune God at work here in John. Church, Jesus is one with the Father because he is God with the Father. And consider his closing statement in this instance. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is speaking here of the mutual indwelling nature of the Trinity. He's speaking here of the deep oneness that exists between the Father and the Son in the Spirit, I and the Father are one, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now, just to avoid any confusion, I want to declare that there is one and only one God. Amen? Amen. There is one God the scripture, that has revealed Himself through the Scriptures. And this God exists eternally in three distinct persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. You see, each person of the Godhead is just as eternal as the next, and each person of the Godhead is equal with the next. They are co-eternal and co-equal. So we're beginning to see them at work in the Gospels, giving rise to the Gospel by which we are saved. Okay, so zoom out for a second. Consider the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. Consider the fact that Jesus' opponents recognized his claims, his claims to be God. And recognize also that the rest of the New Testament writers also claimed that Jesus was God. I supplied several examples. I'm not going to labor through all of them in this moment for the sake of brevity, but I want to draw your attention at the very least to 1 John 5.20. John, the same writer, in one of his letters says, and we know... That the Son of God, Jesus, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, and He is the true God. He is the true God in eternal life. Church, in short, there's no shortage of testimony that Jesus is the Son of God who is also God the Son. He's God. Jesus is one with the Father because he is God with the Father, okay? And just a quick word about something, just culturally speaking, okay? Jesus is not our homeboy, all right? We have a slide for that. There we go. Timing was just a little bit off there, yeah. Yeah, He's not our homeboy, okay? He's not Buddy Jesus. You know, he's not some some chill, moral dude that abides. No, no, no. No. Jesus is God. He is just as much God as the Father is God. He is just as much God as the Spirit is God. He is our God, and as our God, He must be given proper reverence, not spoken of in jocularity, which is irreverence. But back to our passage, we're drawing it to a close. Just like the first exchange of words, this second exchange of words ends with the Jews rejecting Jesus fully and finally. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It still wasn't his time. His hour was not yet uh, here, and so he escapes from them. And then we're told in verse 40 that he pieces out. Jesus departs from Jerusalem. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. You see, the Jews from Jerusalem, they didn't just reject Jesus, they rejected God himself. And so, they refused him, and the consequence of their refusing him, the the consequence of their stubborn hardness of heart, their rejection of him, was... His departure, He left them to their sin, He left them to their fate, which was sealed for eternity. The beauty of this account lies not just in how Jesus has revealed Himself as God, but also that it concludes on a very hopeful note. Because you see, Jesus crosses the Jordan River, He leaves Jerusalem, and there He finds His sheep. He finds those like you and like me. He finds those who see His works and recognize that only those works can be done by God Himself. And so, those ones believe, and they're taken under the secure and perfect protection of the Good Shepherd and the Good Father forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Church, Jesus is one with the Father because He is God with the Father. In Jesus, we meet the living Word. We meet Emmanuel. We meet God with us. And in Jesus, we get access to the Father. And by Jesus, the Spirit is sent to help us, to empower us, to regenerate us, to transform us. In Jesus, God Himself has stepped into human history. We don't worship a mythical God. We don't believe fanciful tales. This isn't Disney, okay? This isn't J.K. Rowling, Alright? This isn't fiction. It is a historically verifiable fact that Jesus of Nazareth was born and lived 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose. And for those who contest his resurrection, his reappearance to all of his disciples, and his subsequent ascension to the right hand of the Father, please explain to me the massive nuclear-sized crater in the historical record, which can only in best be explained by the fact that Jesus is the God who came, died, was entombed, then was raised, then appeared, then ascended. And that God, that Jesus, has said to us this morning, just as to those Jews 2,000 years ago, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And so I, want, I just want to take the lights down. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And, and I, in closing, I want to extend an invitation. I'd be remiss if I did not extend an invitation. You see, this morning, Jesus presents the question to all of us that he presented in Matthew's gospel when he said, but who do you say that I am? Church, who do you say that he is? I have no doubt that there is at least one person that is here this morning that does not know Jesus, that has not yet put their faith in Jesus, that has not yet cried out to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, for mercy, for new life. Who do you say that Jesus is? And how will you respond to his question? You see, Jesus' claims and his questions preclude neutrality. You cannot just be neutral. They force a response. And so how will we respond? How will you respond? Will you respond like the Jews in this account who persisted in unbelief, whose fate was sealed? Or will you respond like those who are his sheep? Will we, will we respond like those who have received him? Will we respond, will you respond like Thomas at the end of the gospel when he was encountered by the risen Jesus and he confessed and he exclaimed, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. If you believe in Jesus this morning, then I invite you to set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart. And to exclaim to him, whether you're sitting right now or whether you're standing in worship, Jesus, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Today is the day of salvation. Through his word which has been proclaimed, Jesus himself is calling you. The Holy Spirit himself is convicting your heart, opening your heart. Jesus is the one you must come to. Jesus is the one you must Come through. Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his flock, who cares for his flock, who saves his flock. Jesus is the good shepherd who knows you, cares for you, and will save you. So don't delay. Respond to him now. You don't need to raise your hand, you don't need to come up here. Just cry out to him where you're sitting. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. Receive forgiveness, receive freedom, and receive new life. Amen, church? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are, you have given us to the Son. You have given us to Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you're the good shepherd, that you, you hold us and you protect us, you lead us, you guide us, you call us by name. Thank you that you've given us the ability to hear your voice and follow you. We pray for those who are here that don't yet know you, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would soften their hearts, that you would call them by name, that they would follow you. Spirit, stir our hearts, renew our hearts, stir the gospel afresh in each of us individually and all of us corporately. Jesus, we pray that in every way, your name be lifted up and glorified in our time together here at Hope Chapel. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all these things and declare all these things about your name, in your name, Jesus, amen. Church, let's stand and worship Jesus, our God.